welcome to About Progress, a podcast devoted to ordinary people who are striving to make realistic improvements in their lives and reach their goals, however big or small. We are building a community of men and women who love to push themselves to overcome obstacles and make something special of their lives, all while maintaining a healthy balance. In short, people who know life is about progress, not perfection. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I apologize for the gruff voice. I'm still under the weather. If you've been here before, thank you for listening in again. And if you can take a moment to subscribe, that would be great, as well as leave a review on iTunes. And if this is your first time, a special thank you for joining in. If you like what you hear, you can access more of my podcast episodes through my archives, which I've linked in the show notes. And you can also find me at aboutprogress.com or on social media at About Progress. I'll have a short do something highlight for you at the end of this episode. Let me tell you what you'll be hearing today. I have an interview with Rachel Gaynor from Rachel Rebuilt. Rachel was a lifelong perfectionist whose life became out of her control. It started with infertility and being obsessed with being healthy and then it became an all-time low after two incredible losses, one of which includes the death of her little baby girl, Daphne. Rachel shares about these incredibly hard times, what she learned from them, and how they forced her to look at herself and decide that she wanted to rebuild her life. And for her, that meant letting go of so much control. Let's go on to listening with Rachel. Hi, I am here with Rachel Gaynor. Hi, Rachel. Hi. I'm so glad that you'd be on the show today. Can you please give us an introduction? I'm Rachel. I live in Utah. Um, I have four kids plus an angel baby. An angel baby. Um, I have an Instagram account called Rachel Rebuilt. Um, I'm a personal trainer, and I'm kind of... Um, known for taking a self-love approach to goal setting and um and fitness and that's kind of my my focus there so your instagram handle alone is really awesome rachel rebuilt so you talked about how you have rebuilt yourself up from a from a low low time in your life and i wanted to know what happened there and how you have grown and how you have rebuilt yourself and in order to go into that i wanted to talk about where you built off from so what was your life like before you became rachel rebuilt and could you maybe go into that a little bit for me and maybe how many years ago that was that you feel like you um were the pre rachel rebuilt Yes, it's kind of a long story, but okay. um, I, I would say that um, I kind of, I grew up being a perfectionist. I'm kind of a straight-laced, rule-abider, um, and I've just always been that way. I, I love to get things right. I'm super in the details, um, and I care a lot about... Um, or I, I used to care a lot about how people perceived me and mm-hmm. whether I was doing things right. Um, and I worried a lot about that. And I, you know, I mean, that started as a kid, obviously, but um, I, it just kind of translated into every piece of my life. And I, 
even picked a career that was all about perfection. I'm a um, professional editor. Um, So I'm in there finding like the commas and the missing periods and spelling errors. And, you know, I picked something that was very in the details and Mm -hmm. it's what I was good at. So good at. And I loved it and was super passionate about it. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't all rainbows. Mm -hmm. It was hard to, when you want things to be so perfect and so right, um, it's hard to ever take risks or put things out there in the world unless you feel 100% and you're just never sure it's 100%. So I always kind of lived in this fear of failing and, hmm. um, you know, it didn't it didn't cripple me, but it definitely was always this lingering feeling hmm. that I wasn't going to measure up and I wasn't going to succeed. And, you know, that kind of, that's just kind of, you know, the personality that I have, just doing things. I, I I tried to tell myself it was about doing my best and that I really just wanted to be my best, but it was deeper than that. It was really this need for approval, this need to, um, to be known as someone who gets things right. And mm-hmm. um, I really valued that. I, re- I really looked outside myself for a lot of validation. Um, and, you know, fast forward a long, a long ways, and um, I became a mom, um, and I became a mom through adoption. Um, and, you know, anytime, I, I think a lot of moms would agree, maybe not every mom, but a lot of moms would agree that um, if you're a perfectionist and you become a mother, it gets that much harder to be a perfectionist mm-hmm. because things just don't always go as you expect them to go because now you have this other little body outside of you that you can't actually control. And um, so I started to kind of have to start letting go of some things. Um, so you talked about how you uh, cared about what other how other people perceived you. You had a fear of failure. And a lot of people say that. There's a lot of people-pleasing tendencies to perfectionism in general. Um, but I think it takes a lot of maturity to admit that. Because I think a perfectionist doesn't want to really see, see that in themselves, that flaw. For sure. But the fact that you're owning sure. that shows like... It shows just how much growth you have had and how far you have come. And, you know, I just was thinking about, you know, I'm making a lot of assumptions here, but it seems like your path to becoming a mother might not have fit the plan that you had and had also probably tested some of these tendencies of yours to have things in a, in a certain way and achieved in a certain timeline. Is that how it was for you? Um, yes and no. Um, mm-hmm. I, yes, in that I, um, I didn't, I didn't grow up knowing anybody who, that I knew because I was a child. So I didn't know anybody who had struggled to get pregnant mm-hmm. or have children biologically. And, um, so it didn't occur to me that I'm, that that might happen in my life. Um, although I did have a sense at some point when I was in high school, I don't know why, but I just decided that I felt really good about adoption and that that was going to be part of my, that that was going to be part of my life. And I didn't Mm -hmm. know how, 
but I didn't expect it to be, I didn't expect it to be the exclusive answer to becoming a mother for me, but, um, but it, but it's something that felt really good in my heart and that I was always really open to. And so, you know, as I, you know, as my husband and I were married and we were married for a while, we were married, oh, six, six years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we finally decided that we needed to um, take some, make some choices about the path that we were going to choose. And, um, you know, things just, you're right, things did not go as I expected. I expected things to work out on my timeline. Um, but I didn't sit around waiting to become a mother. I wanted mm-hmm. to be a mother. And there were lots of times that, you know, I remember a year when I was trying really hard and it was, you know, going through that whole process. And I remember every, I mean, it was like every day somebody was announcing they were having a baby. And I just, I remember one day just being in my car, just, you know, covering my face and just sobbing for like an hour on my lunch break because I was, I just felt so alone. And it was something that was really private and I didn't talk about. And, you know, I was still pretty young. I got married young. I got married when I was 19. So you know, we'd been married six years, and I still wasn't very old. True. So even though people thought, you know, started wondering if maybe I was wanting kids, nobody was really pushy about it in my life because I was still quite young. I see. And, um, you know, but it just was, it, it did come to a place where I was just feeling so lost and alone and, um, like I didn't, I couldn't get myself out of the problem by myself. I just, I didn't know, I didn't have answers um, and I didn't know how to fix it. And that's a, that's a problem for um, someone who's a perfectionist because Uh if you can't fix it, if you can't control it, then it, it's really discouraging and overwhelming. And, um, but because I'd already had these feelings years before that um, adoption would be part of my life. It was um, when it came time to decide, would we try, you know, the medical route or would we try adoption? It, for both of us, it was not, there wasn't much need for decision-making for us. We felt really driven down the adoption path. And, you know, that surprises a lot of people because, a lot of people choose to go down the medical route and then they choose adoption if that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, um, adoption just felt so good and so mm-hmm. right. And it's, it's what we chose. Um, it's the route that we chose. Um, I think that's a good example of how we get this idea in our head of how perfect is going to look in our lives. And, and it doesn't look that way, mm-hmm. but if we're open to the path that we're guided down, um, then that can look perfect. It's different. It's not what we expected. It's not what we, we aimed for, but it's, it turns out to be just right for our situation. And I, I think, so I, I guess that without really knowing it, that's, 
that openness to a new path kind of started with that mm-hmm. for me. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Because I was, because I was open to something that, that wasn't necessarily my plan, you mm-hmm. know? And so, you know, I guess I haven't really thought of it that way before, but I guess it, it was preparatory for me understanding that paths change. Um, and that's kind of what happens with adoption is that everything feels insane and out of your control. Yeah. You put your profile out into the world, mm-hmm. into somebody else's hands, and somebody else picks you. And they decide, somebody else decides if you get to be a parent or not. Yeah. And that is super scary. Um, it's ter- it's terrifying yeah. to put that out there into the world um, and just have to be okay with the fact that some people are you're not for everyone not everyone is going to love you and Mm -hmm. to realize that that's actually a good thing that's Mm -hmm. actually okay and um you know it but it does make you have to like let let go of control and for me I I think in my life perfectionism has always been about a need to control my whole life, mm-hmm. to control every piece of the puzzle. And the older you get, the less control you have because the more moving pieces there are in your life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think that's why, for me at least, I, I grew up feeling very in control and liking that feeling. And then I became an adult and I was still young. I, you know, mm-hmm. like I said, I got married at 19 and I, I was an adult. I had to be an adult. And all of a sudden there were all these moving pieces that I, I had to figure out how to handle and they weren't perfect and I couldn't control them. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting to just think about how that is related to just getting older, that the the older you are, the the less you can control. And I don't know, that's really striking true to me. I, I want to know about how that presented itself to you when you transitioned to being a mother, you were starting to hit on that. And I want to know more about what was that time like for you? And how did it either contribute to you struggling to be so hard on yourself? Or how did it force you to become more accepting of yourself? I was so excited to be a mom and I, I'd waited a a while and, and because of that, I just really embraced it and I really loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, but there were so many pieces of my life that I still didn't want to let go of. Um, you know, I, I had a job that I just really loved and, I just wasn't ready to let go of that. And so, um, but I wanted to be home with my baby that I'd waited so long for. And she'd come very suddenly, you know, we'd, Mm -hmm. we'd put in our papers and she was within our house within a month. And, you know, so quitting my job just over, you know, I, I told my boss one day, Oh, we put in our adoption papers um, just, you know, be aware. And she's, you know, in her head, she's like, Oh, that takes a couple of years. It's no big deal. And then the next day I'm in her office saying, um, we got called and we, we have a baby. She was born yesterday. Oh my goodness. 
you know, it, it was within a couple of weeks and, um, that's incredible. And that was just crazy. It was just crazy. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I, I went home and my, my work, they were really flexible with me, but I couldn't let go. Like I didn't do the maternity leave thing. I just said, I'm just going to work from home. So just, I'm just going to keep my full-time job. Don't fill my place. I'm just going to work from home. And I just worked from home. I wow. woke up at 5 a.m. and worked for like three or four hours. And then I worked during nap time. And I just tried to get, you know, my, for a little while I worked part-time. And then I went back to full-time and I worked for a year. But I did it from home and I did it at really odd hours and shoved it in. But that was very much about me wanting to be perfect. Me wanting to, I wanted to keep up the quality of my work and I wanted to be a really awesome mother during the day. And, um, and the truth was, I just wasn't taking very good care of myself personally. Um, I didn't want to give up this, this working woman, professional writer, editor that I'd worked for so many years to develop because I hadn't actually, I'd always, education was always important to me and, but work wasn't, I didn't necessarily think that I would work for so many years um, before having kids. I really didn't. I just, I grew up in a community where most of the women I knew were stay at home moms and that's what I always thought I would really want and love and that I'd be um, really just so happy to to just do that. And it was really surprising to me when I had waited so long to have a baby and then I just didn't want to give that part of me up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that actually shocked me. I just kept doing what I'd always done, which was juggling, (laughs) which was, you know, hanging on to all these different pieces and being in control. Mm -hmm. And I really thought that I had it all just like so figured out. And, um, and did you, I mean, what what, what happened? (laughs) So, so what kind of happened? So, so one of the things that, that kind of happened, and this is kind of, this is kind of funny, but um, when my daughter was about 18 months old, we went um, we went on a hike as a family, um, and I um, rolled my ankle really severely and um, and like tore a ligament in my Gosh. ankle, and um, it it was awful. Like, I mean, I know there's a lot worse injuries, but it. It was really bad, and when that happened, that laid me up for a good six months um, where it was really hard to get around and really hard to move, and um, I didn't – at that time, I didn't really – I was just eating inexpensive food that was easy and cheap. I was not a good cook, and um, and so between – not eating very well and being laid up for six months, I put on some weight and, um, and that was really hard. That's, that's sort of when, um, the shame from my past started piling on because I, I always struggled with body image my whole youth. 
mm-hmm. um, that was part of the control. Like I, I was so embarrassed and so ashamed of my body. I looked around and thought everybody was so tiny and so little. And I'd gone through so many years of calorie restriction and training really hard. I was on the track team and I would just train and train and train. And, um, and I just, I always just felt self-conscious all growing up. And because of all the perfectionism and the desire to be perceived as having everything figured out, you know, I thought, you know, if I can, I can control my weight, I can do this. And I remember in junior high, like counting my calories and, you know, having read some dumb article about how you should eat 1200 calories to lose weight. And of course in my brain, because I'm, you know, 13, I think, well, if you should eat 1200, if I only eat 800, then I'll really lose weight Mm -hmm. and, and it will be, you know, then I'll be really skinny and that will, then people will think I look skinny and pretty and, And I remember like measuring my food and counting the calories and like eating only like a Nutri-Grain bar for breakfast and a half cup of yogurt for lunch and some carrots and then like eating like as minimally dinner as I could possibly get away with. And I remember doing that for like years Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah. You know, now I look back and realize, like, that was an eating disorder. But mm-hmm. I didn't know that because as a perfectionist, I just thought that I was trying to take care, uh, like, I was trying to follow the rules. Like, yeah. you you do this, you eat 1,200 calories, and then you lose weight. And then, like, I just thought I was following the guidelines, the mm-hmm. rules. I was counting calories. That's what you do, like, if you want to lose weight. And so, you know, that that's kind of what I did. And so, um, you know, fast forwarding back to where this whole tangent started, um, you know, after I got injured, after I hurt my ankle, um, and I started to put on the weight, like so much of all of that childhood anxiety about my body weight just came just crashing down on me, Mm -hmm. just, like piling on and I really like I just couldn't look in the mirror without just being just so much self-loathing and so much shame and just why can't I pull it together what is wrong with me why can't I you know I'm trying so hard like why can't I I don't even know what I'm doing but I didn't have any tools I didn't even know how to get healthy I didn't I just knew that I had lost control of my body and I was so so devastated Mm. um, by that and so the shame just piled on at that point and you don't the thing about things that that we're ashamed of is we don't talk about them so I never when I was going through all of that stuff in you know elementary school and junior high and high school and tell anybody those things I didn't talk to my mother about them I didn't talk to my friends about those things like these are these were just secret things and you believe whether you're a 
a child or you're an adult, you believe that you are the only person who feels that level of shame and insecurity and, um, and you're the only person who feels that uncomfortable in their body. And it's not true, but you really believe it. At least I did. I mm-hmm. believed that like, if I say this out loud, like everyone will think I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. Like I can't say this. Like I, I was just so embarrassed. And, you know, after that, after my ankle healed, um, I, my sweet husband just said, you know, go, go to this, go to this boot camp that you that our neighborhood, our neighbor was going to, um, it's like, go make some friends, go to this boot camp, just see what it's about and see if you like it. And it was incredible. I mm-hmm. loved it. I loved every minute of it. I loved so feeling great. strong. I loved feeling just powerful. Um, and my trainer was amazing. She was just so, so amazing and so um, empowering. But the problem was that I was still a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. And so every single thing that she told me, I just did it better. I just did it as like every, you know, she taught me about macros and I mean, I, this was before my fitness pal and I just counted just every single macro. I weighed my food. I looked it up in books. I, I mean, I spent, I'm ashamed of this, but I seriously spent like two hours a day counting and tracking my food. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I just, and I, every it time that consuming. she looked at my food, yes, it was so all consuming. And every time she looked at my food blog and was like, you're doing great. I'm really proud of you. Um, that just like, hmm. just fed the fire. Yeah. Like, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm like doing this. And I, and I was, I mean, I was feeling amazing. Like my strength was growing and I was feeling so empowered, but at the same time, that I was gaining all these really amazing, good, healthy habits and good skills, I was letting my perfectionism lead me back to some, to those same tendencies that had ruled me as a teenager, that counting of calories, the tracking, the, you know, all the little details that, um, that kept me in line. And I just thrived on that. Mm-hmm. Just getting it right, just being so precise and perfect. I mean, down to the very last carbohydrate, I was eating that, and not a not one gram more. You know, and how do you that's think dangerous. that came into? Yeah, it is dangerous, right? <laughs> yeah. It's so dangerous, but I think oh, just the amount of of headspace that takes up can be so destructive. Not only for you personally, but even for your relationships, for your family. Um, I don't know if you can speak on that. What was that impact like? Um, yeah. In both ways. That was bad. That was bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of, it's almost hard for me to go back into that space Mm -hmm. because it's so, I look at it now and I still, even though I've processed a lot of that, like there's still, there's, 
not shame, but grief. Like I just grieve for that woman who Mm. hated herself so much and didn't know what she was doing to herself and Mm. didn't know enough to stop. And, you know, I, I was getting healthy and in the name of getting healthy, I let it just go too far. And, you know, it, the truth was like, I was getting healthier and I was learning some good tools, but I got to a point at one point where I was down to about 12% body fat, which is wow, super extremely low for a woman. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just, I just would look in the mirror and I would just keep pinching the skin and feeling so ugly and fat. And I wasn't, but I, I had that disordered body dysmorphia where I just couldn't see the real me in the mirror at all. And my trainer at this point could see that. And she started like trying to help me process that, Mm -hmm. um, at least like point me towards like, this is, you need to stop. Like you need to pull back. And that's why I love her so much because she saw, saw things I couldn't see for myself, but, um, it definitely drove a wedge between me and my husband. I mean, I, no matter how much I did for my, did with my body, no matter how skinny I got, I still just hated my body. And that made me unable to like connect with him because he would say, I love you. You're so beautiful. Like you've worked so hard. Like you should be proud of yourself. And, and he's like, you know, I love, he always loved me before. He didn't care. This was only for me. (laughs) And, you know, he would try to, you know, encourage me and comfort me and help me understand and see what I couldn't see. But I just couldn't, I just didn't believe him. You know, I just couldn't, I could, I didn't love myself. So I just couldn't believe that he could love me. How could he love me? I didn't love myself. And, um, it just drives a lack of trust between you and the people who love you because you keep them at arm's distance, you know, not necessarily like physically at arm's distance, but emotionally, there's always part of you that says they, they have to be lying. You know, if you can't accept who you are and love the person you are, it really is almost impossible to believe that someone else can feel that way about you. Um, and that's how it was for me. Um, is that I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't trust that other people loved me. Well, and there's also this element that I feel like I have learned about that is that arm's distance that you're talking about, you need to keep people at arm's distance emotionally is because you don't want them to see you as less than perfect either. You know, so not only is that's all you see about yourself, but you also don't want them to see any anything wrong (laughs) you know so it's kind of you don't want them to you don't want them to see the flaws like you can't you have to keep them further away because then the flaws don't look so obvious and I I feel like I just never I was so scared of the flaws it was like I couldn't even acknowledge 
that they existed. Mm-hmm. It was like for me, like my protective mechanism was just delusion. I just mm-hmm. pretended that everything was okay and that I that I had it all together and that I was doing things in the name of of good and mm-hmm. and that was the thing about about me is that I always felt when when I was both when I was a teenager and when I was an adult I always found the noble cause mm-hmm. right like I was always doing it in the name of better health yeah like I wasn't in truth I was doing it because I wanted to be in control and I wanted to be skinny Mm-hmm. That's what those were. That's the truth. But I told myself the lie that it was for my health yes. because that felt noble. That felt perfect. That felt appropriate. But doing it for vanity, doing it just to be skinnier, that didn't feel. That mm. didn't feel good. That felt icky. Like that I didn't feel want noble. To, that feels selfish. And I didn't. If you you know, want to be perceived as, as honorable and good. And, you know, and I think I, I, I think I was in general, I'm a good person. Mm, I'm a kind person. I'm a loving person. Um, and, but at the, at that time it was so much more, it was about what did the world see Mm -hmm. me as? And I don't think of myself in those terms anymore, but that's how I was then. I just, I worried, like you said, so much about someone seeing the weakness, the flaw. Um, and when you worry about that all the time, you just, you just have a natural barrier that you can't, you can't let people pass it because they might get in and they might see the truth. And the truth is so messy. Like you just can't. I want to know more about how how that happened then. How were you able to stop being blind to these these more deep-rooted motivations of yours? And what happened to lead to that evolution for you? Well, now we get into the really good stuff. <laughs> um, and the really hard stuff. We get stuff. into the, the really hard stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, well, when my oldest was two, mm-hmm. we um, decided to start the adoption process again. And um, we put in our papers and um, we got matched with a family, well, with a birth mom. Mm-hmm. And it was a long match this time. You know, with our first, we we found out about her after she was born. So this one was a five-month match. Wow. And five months, I mean, you, we never talked to our birth mom. We communicated through our liaisons at the agency. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you dream and you get attached and you you hope and you start preparing and you build a room and um, you get, you get ready. So I was preparing for a little baby girl. Our agency typically would bring our birth moms to Utah to deliver. 
Um, and so we were waiting for our birth mom to um, get close enough to, to labor to be able to come. We um, got a call from the agency and they said that they, they told us they'd lost contact with our birth mom, that she hmm. had been MIA for about a week and we didn't, we didn't know. Oh. And, um, and that she was due like any day. So we were just devastated. Mm-hmm. We didn't know, um, if she'd just, if she'd gone to just a different agency or if she decided to keep the baby, we had no idea what had happened. And, um, and I was devastated and, um, I, I, I kind of started, started the grieving process, started to process it. And then one week later, we got a call from the agency that said they found her. She'd been in jail oh. for a week and, um, she was, she was out and they, they were working on getting her to Utah and we were, you know, we were, we felt relieved. We were like, okay, good. Okay. This is still going to work out. She still wants to come. Everything's going to be okay. And, um, and they booked a flight and she didn't get on the flight. She didn't come. She disappeared again. And, um, that just rocked me. Um, Mm -hmm. I felt so good about that match. I just felt like, um, like I was totally supposed to do that. And it just, rocked me it rocked me emotionally it rocked me spiritually and I was just devastated um and I mentioned earlier um in the in the interview that I have an angel baby and this happened before I had an angel baby so to me at the time this felt like a death of course um I I felt like I had just like I'd lost a child and mm. it was super, it was really difficult because it was so lonely. I, we don't typically tell people when we're in the adoption process because um, it can be such a roller coaster. And so we hadn't told anybody about this adoption, even over the five months of waiting. Um, wow. It was just me and my husband and um, you know, like our parents and that was it. Nobody else knew. And, um, and so when this happened, I was super isolated and super alone and you were isolated um, in your grief, isolated in my grief. And it was a grief that I couldn't even really talk about Mm -hmm. with people because, um, because it was so confusing to understand for a lot of people, like why it would be so hard for me. But, um, but I went into a really severe, um, a, a really severe depression and I didn't, I didn't really know. I knew I was sad and that I was, that I was grieving the loss of this little baby. Um, and it, it, one of the hardest parts for me about that loss was that I didn't know what happened to that baby. Yeah. And I would, I could never, ever, ever know. 
And that was just so painful, having known the difficult circumstances that her birth mom came from. And, and, you know, I didn't know, did her birth mom end up in jail again? And did the baby end up in the foster care system? Did her birth mom try to keep her? Mm -hmm. Did she have another, you know, I was just praying, like, hopefully she just had another agency lined up and just went with them instead. You know, I was just praying that she was that she had done that, but I didn't know. I didn't know. And I could never, ever, ever know. And that lack of knowing was so excruciatingly painful for me. And so I went into this depression and I just couldn't, I couldn't function the way that I had before. I, I kind of have described it in the past as feeling like Everything good about me was just curled up in the fetal position, just in this little ball in my chest. And then my body was just this like automaton. And I was just Mm. like going through the motions of like taking care of my daughter and, you know, going through my day and getting food for people. And, but I didn't go out and I didn't, you know, I, I kept one way that I would always, that I I cope with stress is I just create projects and I just kept creating project after project after project to try to just like avoid the grief and, um, and things just were not, things were really hard. Um, and you couldn't avoid it. I couldn't avoid it. I couldn't avoid it. And then, um, but my husband and I decided that we would we would keep trying to adopt again, and it was super scary to me um, because I just I didn't think I could I didn't think I could risk that again. Yeah. But I um, but we we decided to keep going, and we 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 went through a couple of different opportunities that didn't feel right and then um our agency presented us with with two baby girls and one was a little girl in Virginia and one was a little girl in Alabama and the little girl in Alabama was born with a congenital heart defect Hmm. and um you know that just sounded so terrifying and I felt so inadequate for that. And having just been in this really dark, depressed place where I just could barely function, I just, I didn't, I didn't think I was up for that challenge. And I just felt inadequate. I mean, I knew that this little baby would need so much help. And, mm-hmm. and so my husband and I decided that we would we would pursue the option with the baby girl in Virginia and we both got two days into that decision and started having a little text conversation like well what are you thinking are you feeling good about this decision and I just that's what my my husband asked me that and I just like no I don't I don't feel good about this decision I cannot get that baby girl in Alabama out of my head. I just cannot. I'm like, mm-hmm. we 
we are supposed to take her. I don't even know why, but we are supposed to take her. And he's like, me too. He's like, me too. I'm like, we made the wrong choice. And so we just did a complete about face. And, um, and four days later, I was on a plane to Alabama to go be with wow. our daughter, Daphne. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I went there for a month. Um, and she had, some, uh, had her first heart surgery um, and did really, really well. Um, and then we, I brought her home to Utah, and she just didn't do well. She declined really rapidly, um, and we were in and out of the hospital. Um, and and then she um, she just had a really steep decline just before she was two months old, and she ended up back in the hospital again and um they decided that they she wasn't big enough for her second surgery yet she hadn't gained enough weight so they they're like our only option is to go in and redo the first surgery and see if we can improve her blood flow and um so they took her into surgery and she came out she did and she did they they kept saying she's gonna do great. She's gonna do great. She she's looking good, you know all the encouraging things that they say and um, and she passed away later that night. Oh. Um, and oh. and that the world just stopped. Mm-hmm. And. After that, um, I just, I mean, I, what I, what I learned from the previous experience of losing that adoption was that if I handled my daughter's death the same way, I would not survive it. Mm -hmm. And I had to find a new way. And I had to stop. I had to stop believing that I could do it all by myself, that I could get through everything on my own. I had to, for me, I'm extremely religious. And so for me, it required me to get on my knees and pray to God and just ask my Savior to to carry my grief, to help me, to enable me to carry it because I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't continue that way. And, um, and that was the beginning. That was, that was the beginning of things really shifting in my life Mm -hmm. um, where I, I stopped, I stopped trying to be perfect by myself and I stopped believing that I could manage it all because I suddenly, when everything stops like that, you just, you know that you actually can't do it by yourself. Mm -hmm. You can keep trying, but, but it, I just couldn't anymore. And, um, 
and things, I mean, so much happened after my daughter passed away and Mm -hmm. things just changed a lot. And, um, I was six years ago, right? That was, yeah, that was almost exactly six years ago that she passed away. And, um, after kind of realizing I couldn't do it on my own, um, I spent the first year to two years, like just, just trying to get through, just processing, trying to, you know, I, I felt like so much, you know, if I felt it was curled up in inside me after losing the adoption, I felt like I, I just, it was dead. Like I had, part Mm -hmm. of me had just died when my daughter died. I couldn't, I mean, I'd been an editor and I, I couldn't even concentrate on a paragraph. I couldn't look for a period to save my life. You know, Mm I, the things that had come so naturally and easy were just gone. They just were, I, I couldn't have them anymore. And, and so I just kind of, I just did the best I could over the next few years, just trying to get through. And, um, during that time, actually not long after we lost Daphne, we decided to be brave again and we adopted our daughter, um, our third daughter. And, um, and that was, that was a real leap of faith, um, Mm -hmm. an act of courage um, but it was really the best thing that I could have done um, to just, like you said, like we talked about at the beginning, just um, not, the plan doesn't look the way you think it's going to look. And we'd had loss and then loss, and then we just decided to be brave again. And um, and I got this really crazy idea when my daughter was, my youngest daughter wasn't quite that we should adopt two baby boys back to back. So we did. Really? Like, did you hear about them in a similar way? They tell you about Um, No, we just went, we just went to our agency and said, we want to get two. Wow. And so you have to get approved to do two at the same time. So they just approved us and then we... We got one, and then we got another one two months later. So wow! I just and, and how that, far apart are they in age? If I wa- they're two months apart. So they are two so months if apart. If I wasn't like, if I wasn't crazy wow. after my first child, when I was like, oh, everything's fine. I'm still holding all these tights, and everything's fine. When I got my two boys, then I was like. Oh, to heck with it. I can't hold on to anything. <laughs> this is crazy. Like, I yeah. spent my whole life, like, bottle feeding them and then, you know, trying know to squeeze in a workout you. between and then trying to, you know, not fall asleep while I'm playing on the floor with my other kids. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just, like, mass chaos. But it's so, like, it's kind of hard to jump in the story from losing Daphne and all the grief that came with that to talking about my boys but that's like fast forwarding just so much of everything and life but um but there's no time for what's in in between um but that all those things combined 
um, I came to a place I, you know, again, I was in a place where I was doing my best to care for myself, but that's really hard to do when you have four kids under the age of five and you're still not that far away from having lost a child. Yeah. And it, you know, I had all these healthy habits I was trying to maintain, but I was still doing the perfectionist thing. I was still doing everything in that arena so, so extreme because it was a thing I felt I could control. And, um, again, like underlying all of this is that, that body shame, the, that self, self-hatred, self-loathing more, um, just self-doubt, um, all of it was like underwriting this. Like it was kind of silent and dormant mm-hmm. because the grief was so overpowering, mm-hmm. but it was always just kind of there. And um, it's hard to explain how they, how it kind of ebbs and flows, but what I found and what I find when I look back is that it rises up and gets really powerful during times of stress okay. when, when other, everything else in my life was out of control, I would like rush over and be like, I can control this. I can control my mm. health. I can, I can eat healthy and I can exercise and I can be in control. And then and then you really can't because you're under so much pressure and so much stress from grief and stress from having so many little kids and stress from two newborn little boys. And you realize, actually, no, I just can't. I just can't do it all. And um, and then that's about about three years ago when my boys were about a year old, I just came to a place where I, I realized, like, when I had my daughter in my arms, my daughter Daphne, by the standards of the world, her body was not perfect. She had half of a heart, and she just, she, it didn't function the way that it was supposed to but her body was so perfect and so beautiful and I loved her so much. And she was so full of radiance and light and purity and goodness. And I could see everything in her eyes, her eyes. I mean, if you've ever seen a picture of her, just her eyes are just wide and full Mm -hmm. of just this luminous light and it just doesn't, a picture doesn't capture it, but it's like, it's all we have. Mm-hmm. And um, she was so amazing, and I loved her so much. And um, and when I got to this point three years ago, I thought of that, how much I loved her and how amazing her body was and how much God loved her. And I realized that, I needed, I I got a glimpse of God's love and God's love for me. And I realized that I had to give myself the love and the grace that I would give my daughter. And I couldn't really believe in my own, it was still that feeling of like doubt, like keeping 
the relationships at arm's distance, like I still had that doubt of whether I was worthy of love and whether I was good enough. Um, but I believed in a God who could love me as I was mm-hmm. and who could, who could, who had made me a God who had made me. And I realized at that point that I had to stop. Um, I had to stop trying to fix my body to feel better about myself. And I had to start fixing everything that was going on in my head. And that's when like my eyes really opened to all this. I mean, I knew I was a perfectionist, but I didn't know that was a bad thing. Okay. Um, uh-huh. We praise it so much. Yeah. I just, I didn't know it was a bad thing. I just thought like wanting to be really good at stuff was like, that was worthy and appropriate. And mm-hmm. As I went through it, I didn't know that there was something wrong with how I'd approached my life up until that point. I really just thought that wanting to be your best was what we were meant to do on this earth. Mm-hmm. And and it was really at that point three years ago when I realized that wanting to be your best and being a perfectionist and trying to control everything are not the same thing. Yeah. Wanting to be a perfectionist and have control has to do with everybody else. But wanting to do my best had everything to do with me feeling satisfied with myself and my life. And and for me, that also extends to God. But for mm-hmm. some people, extending it to God can be also equally dangerous, right? But for yeah. me, that was a safe relationship where I, because I believed in a God who could love me as I was. Mm-hmm. And um, and so for me, that was the beginning. And I I wrote down what I call my fitness manifesto, mm-hmm. but it was it was all about shifting my focus. And for me, it start it just started with the words, "I am a beloved daughter of God." Um, and then and then it just talks about how what I wanted to change that I wanted to change to not, you know, change criticism into gratitude um, and wonder and to appreciate my body and to stop, you know, worshiping at the foot of the scale and yeah. to to start treating my body with love and respect. So I still, I still wanted to be healthy, but I really wanted to, I was the, it was the beginning of shifting to a new mindset um, and that's where things really started to change. And once I made that shift, um, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't magic. Like that didn't just like magically fix everything. Oh, I have this revelation and now I love myself. It was not like that. You know, the last three years have been not about just like, oh, I automatically love myself, but about incorporating a practice of daily self-love and to really, and I like to think of it in that term, which I borrow from, you know, the practice of yoga and just that you, you do it daily. You practice every single day and it, all, you know, all those negative thoughts, all those unkind things, 
in your mind, you you think that those come from you, that like you believe those things about yourself. And they kind of come from you. They come from a history of wanting to be a certain way. But they also come from media and they come from, you know, in from a spiritual perspective, they come from the devil, yeah. you know, the, just wanting you to not love your body because your body is a gift, the gift from God. And um, I, I really believe that. And if I believe that, then I believe that if, if God wants me to love my body because it's a gift, then I have to believe that the devil wants me to hate it because it's a gift from God. And that has really helped me, that mindset shift has really helped me to understand that these thoughts that I'm having, these negative feelings about myself, they don't come from me. That's not who I am. I'm not someone, I always identified as someone who didn't love her body. And so it really helped me to start pushing those thoughts outside of myself and say, these actually don't don't come from me. These come mm. from elsewhere. Because when you be- if you believe they're part of you, it's really hard to separate yourself. See, see. Mm-hmm. But yeah. as I started to believe that they came from outside of myself, then I could introduce this other internal voice or wake up this other internal voice that was kind, that was loving, that protected me that every time I wanted to be really extreme in my diet or exercise that would come back and say, no, no, you have to stop. You remember where that led you before. And it became a protective, loving voice that said, you're, you're safe here and you can love yourself. And as I learned to let that voice in, I realized that all those years that I'd spent not loving myself was actually the most selfish time of my life because mm. I spent all my time thinking about me, about what other people thought of me, about how I could be a certain way, just perfect and just worrying so much about me. But when I started to feel that sense of acceptance of who I was and what I was capable of, then I could stop worrying about everybody else, like what everybody thought of me. And I could just love them and serve them. Hmm. And I didn't have to compete with them because there was no one out there measuring everybody and giving each other, you know, giving everybody gold stars. Like I have realized like it's okay to still accept that I like rules and that Mm -hmm. I like gold stars. And I like, I like, but I don't want, the world doesn't need to give me gold stars anymore. I get them. I give them to myself now. That's yeah. the difference for me is that before I needed everybody else to be like, you know, pinning me with gold stars. And now, now I get to decide what gets, what makes me happy. I get to decide if I'm putting goodness out into the world. I get to decide if I'm satisfied with my efforts, I get to decide what productivity looks like. Now I love the woman that I'm, that I am and I love where I'm trying to go. And that's 
really powerful in my life. It's just That's changed beautiful. changed me so much because I, I don't go hide under a rock even if I want to. Um, and I just, it's just different. It's different now um, than it was three years ago, different than it was six years ago, different than it was 10 years ago. And three years from now, it's going to be different. But I'm, I now feel like I'm moving the right direction. You know, Rachel, I always ask people what they um, have learned, you know, the, the past few years. And I think you just summed it up right there. And we couldn't do better than that. Before I let you go, I want you to, to, to tell us what, what services you are offering with all these things you have learned, you, you are starting something incredible. And I just want people to know how to, to be able to use your expertise in these areas and, and combine this all into just a wonderful thing that you are doing. So can you tell us about that and where people can find you before we let you go? Yes. Um, so the big scary thing that I'm doing that had me like wanting to hide in the corner today yeah. um, is <laughs> just because it's scary. It is. Um, yeah. But I'm so so I'm so psyched. Um, I have spent some time working on a 12 week um, fitness program called Body Love Boot Camp, mm-hmm. um, and it is designed. It's a you do get 12 weeks of workouts, and you'll get some. Um, nutrition tips to kind of help you learn to look at your plate differently um, and to make some choices. But it's really more about like customizing your program. So if you've been doing lots of programs and really are stuck on like doing everything perfectly, like, you know, I was counting macros to the extreme or eating whole foods to the extreme. I also have done that. Um, this is designed to kind of help you take those pieces and start pulling them together with your own intuition and mm-hmm. learn how to that. take that intuition so that you can start to own your choices and feel really empowered to make your own decisions in your health. Um, and then there's a huge, a huge portion of the course that's dedicated to mindset, that's dedicated to processing feelings of body shame, um, finding self-love, focusing on gratitude, focusing on um, a more abundant, of an, a mentality of abundance versus scarcity, mm. um, and just a lot of like more mindset-based training to help you move from a place where you're stuck in this perfectionist all or nothing wheel and to help you find like, what is your, what is your middle ground look like and, and how is it customized to you? Um, almost like, you know, for people who still like the rules, like I still like the rules, you know, but, but you get to decide what those rules look like and you get to change them whenever they don't work for you anymore. Um, and so that's what this program is kind of designed to help people do. So is great. Kind of make, make some of those big mental switches while still driving towards um, really hard fitness goals that do take a lot of determination and, and big changes. So. 
This seems exactly the balance that I wish everybody did. You know, it just is, that's just so amazing how you're able to couple those two things you've learned. Well, you know, not, I'm not saying two things, but two sides of yourself yeah. together <laughs> into something yeah. that's going to help others. Yeah. How can people participate in that? Where can they um, go for that? Um, so you can visit um, rachelrebuilt.com. Um, or you can visit me on Instagram at Rachel underscore rebuilt. Um, okay. And there's information there. Wonderful. Well, Rachel, this was just such an incredible interview. Thank you for taking the time. And I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, thank you so much for having me, Monica. I really appreciate it. Don't you just love Rachel? I especially was impressed by how upfront she is about her weaknesses. And it shows so much strength and growth. And I'm really grateful that she'd be willing to share that with us and the lessons that she learned. I have more ways for you to see about Rachel in the show notes, especially if you are interested in joining her 12-week boot camp. So go ahead and check that out. You can direct message me and let me know what you've learned in this episode, or you can use the hashtag about progress podcast to tell me. And that also includes ways um, for you to tell me what you're up to while you're listening. Last week, several kind listeners told me about how this podcast is shaping their lives and it meant the world to me. I really did need that encouragement. It was a bit of a low week and I needed it. So thank you very much for those who have reached out to me. And I hope you all didn't mind the informal podcast last week, including the sounds of my little boy munching on crackers and whining to sit on my lap. And I am going to continue those informal podcasts one a month, centering around a topic that I've been thinking a lot about. Next month's I think will be on technology. And the one after that will beyond fitness, I believe. So if you have any feedback on those episodes or these ones, please reach out to me and I have ways for you to contact me listed in the show notes. Let's turn to my do something highlight today. In case you forgot, this is short for do something that scares you, a campaign I started to highlight. Uh, Oh, started to encourage people to try new things from big to small. And there's more info on this little campaign of mine and the show notes as well. Today's highlight comes from listener Kelly Andrews. She commented on one of my posts saying that last week's podcast on goals and my tip to not think too much inspired her to post a blog post onto her Facebook page and share it with all of her friends. And I read her great post on postpartum depression and I linked that in the show notes for you if you are interested. So thank you, Kelly, and well done. If you would like to share your own do something highlight or to share someone else you know, or even nominate someone to be interviewed on the show, please contact me. Again, my contact information is in the show notes, and you can always direct message me on social media at About Progress. I'll see you next Wednesday for another great interview, and until then, take care of yourself. <music>